All right, it's, uh, it's 9.30, so we can, uh, we, can, we can get started here on our discussion this morning. Uh, my name is Mercury Payton here. I am a sinner saved by the grace of God, um, uh, redeemed by our, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I'm also an elder here um, at Delray Baptist Church, and um, some of my sons are back there, and my daughter's over there, so... How do you guys? Um, I'll start by opening us up in prayer, and then we'll look at the topic of the eternal decrees of God. So let's, let's all pray. Holy God in heaven, we are before your throne of grace this morning, knowing that you reign supreme. There's a peace in our, in our hearts, knowing that you our good God, that you are the one who cares so intimately about the creation that you started, the creation that you preside over, the creation that you love and care for. So on this morning, we ask that you would help us to see you a little bit more clearly, to know you a little bit closer, to be more intimate with you as we hear from your word. Uh, we ask that you would, uh, would strengthen us all to learn uh, more about your eternal decrees. They are a blessing to us, they are good to us, and uh, we want to drink from that fountain evermore. We give you glory and praise, and we're here uh, to serve you on the authority of Jesus Christ, we ask, amen. All right, there are handouts in the back there if, um, if you want to follow along. And uh, if I am not projecting, please let me know, because I know that I tend to not do that very well. Um, the first passage that, that I'll, I'll cite here is from Isaiah 46.10. And it reads the following. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's from Isaiah 46.10. That's a good starting point when we consider and think about the eternal decrees of God. When we think about the eternal decrees of God, there are three terms that probably should come to mind when we think about the Lord in this way. And there, these three terms are attributes of God, and I think we've kind of covered those in the last couple weeks. One is uh, God's sovereignty, his omnipotence, and him being infinite. Uh, God is sovereign, and so we just read from, I, I just read from Isaiah 46.10, where it demonstrates how his counsel shall stand from the beginning to the end. Now, God being omnipotent, meaning he's, him, him being all-powerful, acknowledges that he is the one who is boundless and uh, has all strength and power within him. If we think about God's control over his creation and ultimate power over creation, we should contrast the pe people's use of these traits with God's, right? So him, history demonstrates 
that when fallen mankind exerts a measure of control and power, great harm is done to people and creation uh, is ultimately damaged in some way. We can think about this in terms of the last, probably last century. You think of great rulers and kingdoms that have risen and fallen, and you can think about just how destructive man can become. Now there's a, a quote here from someone we know, John Henderson, that I'll, that I'll say here. But by contrast, God uses his eternal decrees to serve his glory and to serve the true God, the true good of creation. John Henderson also says that he loves, God loves, serves, gives, which is amazing to consider for a being whose decrees are almighty and immovable. So we have the contrast of how people interact when they have some measure of control and authority and contrasting that with a loving God who serves, gives uh, to his creation and sustains it, even though he is almighty and his decrees are immovable. So the third term that we'll talk about here is God being infinite. And so the infinite nature of God means that there is nothing beyond him in any way whether in the physical realm or in the spiritual realm, right? So we know, looking around this room, we see physical, we see people, we're sitting on chairs, we, we see things we can touch, so that's the physical realm. Then there are things that we cannot see in the spiritual realm, and even in that realm, there's nothing that's beyond God. He's infinite. He is with, without any kind of boundaries at all. He is uh, beyond the creation that he has created. So he's sovereign, he's omnipotent, and infinite. So with that starting point, our main idea or our thesis statement or the thing we want to kind of focus on is this statement, and it's at the top of your handout there, on the main idea. All of the actions in creation, including the salvation of God's elect, have occurred and will occur because of God's eternal decrees. I'll read that once more. All of the actions in creation, including the salvation of God's elect, have occurred and will occur because of God's eternal decrees. So that's how we're going to uh, begin this discussion. Uh, and before we launch off into this discussion, um, how would you describe God's eternal decrees? If you had a moment to just think about if you wanted to define that in some way, how would you define that? Um, and as we're thinking about that, uh, I would ask Avery, could you give me a glass of water, please? That would be, that would be helpful. So how would we describe or uh, uh, define God's eternal decrees? Does anyone want to take a shot at that? Okay, one more time. expression of the harmony of his attributes and his perfect will. Yeah, that is, that is a really good way to describe it. I think that's accurate. Uh, it's pretty close to what Martin Lloyd-Jones is one of the source documents for, uh, for this lesson here, uh, the book, The Great Doctrines of the Bible. Uh, he says that the description which is given in the Bible of God's manner or method of working 
these are the things that which God determined, thank you, and ordained before he had done anything at all. So if we think about God's eternal decrees, it's things happening before, him ordaining things before they had, anything had happened at all, knowing that he is the one who has the control and authority and the ability to ordain these things from eternity past. All right. So we're going to talk about here a few different topics under this heading. Uh, the first one is God's sovereignty over his creation. We're going to talk about human decision, good works, evil, future things. Those are some of the topics we're going to discuss. Uh, under the topic of human decisions, the natural question to ask, or that anyone would ask in the study of God's eternal decrees, is about an individual's role and what takes place as we walk this earth. In a practical sense, human beings make decisions. We make decisions all the time, right? Everyone in this room decided to drive here or walk here today, or bicycle, or get the metro, however you got here. You decided to come this morning. People obviously have intelligence. We think. We process information. Uh, we actually determine to do everything that we desire to do that's within our power control. Right? We decided to get up this morning. We decided to drink water or have breakfast, um, if we did have breakfast, coffee, whatever we did decide to do. When a person does something, it is very normal to expect that we did such a thing under the full knowledge that we decided to do this. So now, we want to look at these human decisions, though, in the context of God's eternal decrees. So here's an example of God's eternal decrees working through the decision-making of fallen people. If we could look at Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, if someone could, could uh, grab that. And then someone else, Genesis chapter 45, verse 8. Someone else could look at Genesis chapter 37, verses 20 through 28, and then Exodus 4, 21. And then we'll read these passages in succession, and then we'll talk about them. So does someone have Genesis 50? I got it. All right. Yes, amen. If someone could read uh, Genesis 45, 8. So not you who sent me here, but God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Mm, that's good. And then Genesis 37, 20 through 28. Sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites 
All right, thank you. Thank you. And then Exodus 4, 21. So we're going to talk about these four passages here briefly. Joseph shares with his brothers in Genesis 45.8 that God was the one who sent him to Egypt. In Genesis 37, we see the historical events unfold with Joseph's brothers clearly deciding to harm Joseph. It was their intent to do him wrong. Taken together, we see the eternal decrees of God at work, which sends Joseph to Egypt, right? In bondage through human decision of Joseph's brothers. The Lord used the natural desires of fallen people to bring about good for Joseph by placing him in a position of authority and then later preserving the people of Israel during a time of famine and ultimately bringing about the salvation of his elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation through the birth of Jesus Christ through this same people of Israel. So amazingly, God even delivered the brothers from death. So the same very brothers who delivered him over were spared death through famine through their sinful act against Joseph. So think about that. You know, they send him over to be utter, basically destroyed or, 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 or killed or at least they wouldn't even know of him evermore. You know, they, they thought he would be gone forever. And through that sinful act, God used that to actually save them from famine. So in that sense, Joseph was a type of Christ in a sense. Another example of God using human decisions with in his eternal decrees is within, with Moses and Pharaoh in that relationship. God says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let the Israelites go into, um, let, let, let them go. So this, we can find this in Exodus chapter 4, 21. We just read that. Uh, we see a defiant Pharaoh in chapter 7 through 14. So in all those chapters, you see Pharaoh over and over and over again being defiant clearly deciding not to let the people go. Still, we do see God's eternal decrees, though, in what God tells Moses before Pharaoh even begins to act. So I'll ask this question. Is it clear that God uses human decisions to carry out his eternal decrees? Do we see that? Okay, all right. So now we're going to look at a difficult topic briefly here, and it's the topic of evil. If we could have someone turn to John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, and then someone else turn to Jeremiah chapter 27, verses 5 through 7. Thank you. And then Jeremiah 27, 5 through 7. 
have made the earth, the man, and the beasts that are on the ground, and by my great power and my outstretched arm, and have given it to whom it seems proper to me. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. My servant and the beasts of the field I have also given mm -hmm. him to serve him. All right, thank you. So let's talk about these two passages. Another question that is natural when we think about the, the eternal decrees of God is regarding difficult providences or difficult situations. And we all have experienced challenging things in our lives, and in many cases, we're maybe going through those things now. But Christians at times, not all the time, but at times can look back and see some blessing in those difficult challenges and situations. Uh, God is still good when difficult things happen. And we think about John chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. The initial reaction to the people around was, there must be some sin in this person's life. But it is, and it is clear that you know, being born blind would be a challenging thing. Yet Christ told his disciples that the man did not cause sin, I mean, did not have sin in his, in his life that caused him to be blind. Nor did his parents sin in causing him to be blind. So now we know we believe in original sin and we know that this blind person is a sinner, right? We know that the, uh, his parents were sinners, but Jesus is saying that those sins weren't directly correlation between him being blind or not. But Jesus states that it is basically him working good works through him so that they would be revealed, right? So. It's not always a situation where if there's something bad happening to us that we can say, okay, well, obviously there must be some sin going on in our lives that causes us to have whatever uh, bad thing that happens to us. But we, we should look for the good, right? We should look for what, what is God doing through this difficult situation. We also see in, in Jeremiah chapter 27 that God gave power to Nebuchadnezzar even when he knew he would rule harshly. Now, I don't know about you all, but when I hear the name Nebuchadnezzar, I think of, you know, just a harsh rule. Um, I think about all that he had done with the captivity with the, with the Babylonians and how he uh, had God's people under his uh, control. But yet we see in chapter 27, verses 5 through 7, that he received his authority from God, and that he, that he God, gives his, his certain authority to rulers on earth as it seems right to him. In this instance, all the nations were to serve Nebuchadnezzar, his son, and his son's sons. God had a purpose for Nebuchadnezzar, and some of those outcomes were hard, painful, and even devastating for the people who were under his rule. So the question I have for, for us here is, as hard as it may seem, do you see how God's eternal sovereign decrees are over even evil? Do we see that? Okay. And I think another example would be Job. We don't have time to go into that now, but Job would be another example of living in the present moment of a difficult situation and God being sovereign over that and walking through that and ultimately God having causing good at the, at the end at some point 
Um, and I would even say that sometimes with regard to evil um, and, and bad things, there may not be a, a, a moment in time where we see the good even in this life. I mean, God is God and he's sovereign over all. And there may be times in which we see, oh, okay, I went through that and God made something good out of that happen and we see that blessing. And there are other times we may not. We're, we're not God and he's sovereign over all, over all these things. So a, a topic that is easier to, to grasp and to take in is the topic of good, right? So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. If someone could turn there, we'll talk about good briefly. Yeah, that's good, that's good. So this topic here is easier for us to take in and to grasp, but we should state it nonetheless. God's eternal decrees are clearly over the good that happens in, in, in our lives and in our, in our walks. This is one of the reasons why we pray. This is why we praise him when things go well. This is why we often have hopeful expectations. We know that every good and perfect gift comes from God. Another example is where God used Elijah in the Old Testament as an instrument of his mercy during a fierce drought. There was a widow who had very little, and as her hope for the future on this earth was fading, she was preparing for her son and for her to die. Yet Elijah instructed her to give him what she had. In doing so, he told her that her flour and oil would not run out. So we know about this story in 1 Kings chapter 17. We see God providing something good for this widow. Going back to uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10, we see that Christians are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which were prepared beforehand. In God's eternal decrees, Christians were prepared to do good things for our Father. This is exciting news for all of us as Christians because we can all be used for God's glory and for the good of people around us. So do we see this? Do we see this, how God uses eternal decrees for good? I mean, I think it's pretty clear. All right, and so the last part of the section here before we move on to the next is about future things. Someone could grab Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31, and then someone else, Proverbs 21, verse 1, and we'll talk about those briefly. Does someone have Matthew? Proverbs 21, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. So the doctrine of God's eternal decrees is comforting. It gives us peace about our ultimate end. 
we know, according to Romans 8.28, all things work together for good for those who love God and called according to his purpose. Difficulties in this life are actually working together for our good. We know that God will ultimately bring us to our Father to have everlasting peace and fellowship with him. This gives us a sure hope. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, we just heard that read, that God is overseeing all of his creation, even uh, a sparrow, right? And so much, so, how much more so us? In Proverbs 21, verse 1, we see that the king's heart is in the hands of the Lord. So how much more all of creation? Life is hard. And the difficulties and unexpected twists and turns of this life make us wonder what will happen next. It even may give us anxiety at points. Many of us are walking that road right now. But the doctrines of God's eternal decree should give us comfort in two ways about the future. First, in this life, every difficulty is working itself out in God's eternal decrees in some way. There is an eternal purpose in it. Second, we know that Christ will return and give eternal life to his people, and our fellowship with him will have no end. So that is a little bit on the future things that are under God's control under his eternal decrees. I know I'm going pretty fast here. Does anyone have any questions about any of these topics? All right. So this, this last section here that we'll talk about is regarding God's eternal decrees and the salvation of his people. So let's look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8. John 6, verse 44. And Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. And if someone can read the Genesis passage, that will help us out. And then the Deuteronomy passage, does someone have that? And then a John passage, John 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Okay. In Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Oh, my God, it's worth Without this, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the love. All right. All right. 
So in terms of his eternal decrees uh, and his purpose to save people, we clearly see language that demonstrates that God is active in the participation of our salvation. He's not passive. He's not standing off and wondering what's going to happen. He's not standing off and is not, doesn't have the authority or power to make something happen. We talked about that, right? God's omnipotence. Right? We talk about him being intimate and involved in our lives. We talked about him caring about even a sparrow, right? And so he's active in the participation of our salvation. We see in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, that the Lord initiates his relationship with Abram. He says to him, leave your country and I will make you a great nation. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's not even talking just about Abraham and the, and the ethnic line that would come through. He's talking about everyone throughout all of, um, of the earth, as far as all the nations of the earth being blessed through him. And later we see in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8, that he set his love on a particular people, not because of their deeds or anything in them necessarily. Um, it was because he decided to set his love on them. He even says that it's for they were the fewest of all people, um, but it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath to, that he swore to, his father, to, your, to, um, to the fathers um, that he mentioned there in verses, verse, verse 8 there. So Jesus is, now transitioning, Jesus is very clear when it comes to salvation of his people. John 6, 44 states, No one can come to him unless the Father who sent him draws him, and Christ himself will raise, will, will, will raise that drawn people to himself at the last day. So if you think about the language here, look at the Genesis passage where God interrupts Abram and says, leave your country, I will make you a great nation, I will bless all the peoples of the earth through you. We see with Jesus here, he says, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws. And I don't know about you, but if you think about like a, a water in a well, it doesn't just jump out of the well. You, you, you draw the water out of the well, right? So there's an active piece that Jesus is talking about here. This indicates that the Father is active in who he draws, and the Son is active in who he raises on the last day. So think about that. So Jesus is actively going to raise his people on the last day. We also see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, that God is active in the redemption as he made us alive who were dead in our trespasses and sins. So everyone in this room who puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, at some point were dead in our trespasses and sin. And so we know that we were made alive so that we could love him. These eternal decrees regarding salvation that the Father set in motion in eternity past shows his great love and mercy toward his people. We see in Ephesians 1, 4 that he chose us before the foundation of the world. God has always been intentional and active in saving his people, and he continues to save people in this manner today. So do we see how God is active in saving? We see that, right? Mm -hmm. All right, so now, so within that topic, 
what free will, right? So that so that's what people will kind of ask the question about free will. What about free will? So let's let's just drive, jump right into that. So it can be difficult to accept the supreme electing sovereignty of God existing alongside the moral culpability and responsibility of mankind and that happening harmoniously. In our limited understanding, we might believe these truths contradict. That, that might be our, our, our conclusion that we come to. This is one reason why God's word is so important. This is why believing in the inspiration and authority of scripture is so important. We need his perspective, not our own, to govern the conversation regarding how our salvation occurred. The topic of free will is important, though. The topic gets into the discussion of synergism versus monergism. At the heart of the discussion regarding man's role in salvation is the question of the extent to which humans have fallen. I mean, that's the core part of the discussion. If people died spiritually in the fall when Adam rebelled against God, then man has no ability to reach out to God. But if people did not totally die spiritually in the fall when Adam rebelled against God, then there is enough good in people after the fall, at least enough to reach out to God, to call on him, to ask for forgiveness, and to believe in Christ. So monergism, thinking like singularly, monergism, right, holds to the view that humans totally have fallen, are spiritually dead, and God makes the dead heart alive. Monergism holds the view that is expressed in 1 Corinthians chapter, four, chapter 2, verse 14, that the fallen sinner has no understanding, moral ability, or inclination to believe prior to the new birth. It holds the view that regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit alone, applying the effectual crosswork of Christ to the unspiritual man. So what makes people differ is Jesus Christ alone, and that is according to John Hendricks in his Two Views of Regeneration. You can look up that resource if you, if you uh, like to do that. Now, synergism holds to the view that humans are not totally fallen. So you think syn like synergy, like, like synergy that comes from that word, if you can think about it. At least they are spiritually alive enough to reach out to God for redemption. So synergism holds to the view that fallen sinners kind of work with God, have the ability and the potential inclination to believe in Christ even prior to new birth. It, is, it holds a view that regeneration is the work of Christ plus the goodwill of an unspiritual man. What makes people differ from one another is not the grace of Jesus alone, but Jesus plus the remaining good will of the unspiritual man. So what you've got to is two different perspectives here. You've got one perspective where you've got a man that has completely fallen dead in his sin and is unable to do anything. So you've got a dead, a dead person, a dead spiritual person that can do nothing, right? Then you have the other view where you've got some deadness, but some ability still to do something to reach up to God without him initiating that. So that, those are the two views there. 
So we, we probably need to go a little further to probably dive into maybe some responses to, the, to this question. And I've got three responses that we can look into. First one is, Scripture teaches that God chooses his people. Now the first response that we're going to is that the difficulty of predestination denying free will is that the Scripture teaches us that God chooses his own people. So if we lean into the word of God, we can get a little closer to uh, the answer to this question here. So Sinclair Ferguson's book, The, the Christian Life, uh, he says this. He says, Scripture teaches us that God has chosen his believing people from all eternity. On that, our hearts should rest, however mysterious it may seem to us to be. That's a, I think that's a pretty accurate statement. A Christian must be born again, which means that, that the Christian is born of the Spirit of God, according to John chapter 3, verse 7. And that reads, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Then we see in John chapter 1, verse 13, Scripture refers to Christians as those who were born, not of the blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And then we see Scripture teaches that God gives us faith. So a second response is, is that God does not believe for us. So Whenever we think about God involving himself in the salvation of people, he's not believing for us. Let's look at that. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, God makes us alive, right? So verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together in Christ. He made us alive. That's important to hold on to that thought. He made us alive. Then according to Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, God gives us faith to believe in him. So we're, we're alive in verses 4 through 5, then the same chapter, same book, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. So we see that faith is a gift of God. So he makes us alive. He gives us the gift of faith. And then according to John 6, 37, once we were made alive in him, we respond. Verse 37, all that the Father gives, gives me will come to me. So we think about the term will come to me. It's like I'm, I'm walking through this door and I'm coming over to talk to Ben, right? So I'm coming through the door. So we're, we're coming to something or coming to someone, in this sense, we who have been made alive in him, have been given faith in him, we come to the Father who is the one who saves us through his son, Jesus Christ. So then, all, so then we know that all who are drawn to him will come to him according to the scriptures. Our third response is, scripture does speak of free will. It's a concept of free will that it never cancels out the fact that Scripture tells us that the, Christ, the Christians were dead in our trespasses and sin, and we were made alive in the, by the power of the Holy Spirit and drawn to the Father um, for salvation. That is how the Christian chooses God. So just how we started this discussion uh, this morning, we all chose to get up this morning, we all chose to 
put on the clothes we put on, chose to eat what we ate, chose to come here. Uh, but yet, in our making decisions, it's under the umbrella of God's sovereignty and his decrees. So they ought not to be separated. So as we look at, again, Sinclair Ferguson has a, a good uh, statement here. He says, the phrase free will is used in the Bible only in the context of stewardship. Romans 3, verses 11 through 12, confirms what he says here. Verse 11 of Romans 3, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Verse 12, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. I know that kind of is countercultural. We think in terms today of, of all the, the good that people do. And I think it is true that when you see someone who is homeless and you give them food, or if someone needs a ride and you, and you help them out, certainly those are good things. But those good things do not save us. Those good things do not save us. And ultimately, when we talk in the context of salvation, no one seeks God. And that's in Romans chapter 3, verse 11. Martin Luther once wrote this statement. Those who are without faith are not justified, and those who are not justified are sinners in whom any supposed free will can only produce evil. So free will is nothing but a slave of sin, death, and Satan. Such freedom is no freedom at all. And that can be found in Luther's uh, Bondage of the Will is where you can, can find that, that statement. We contribute nothing to our own salvation, yet once we are made alive in Christ, regenerated, we do actively believe in him. So I would ask you all, what do you think about that topic? Do you have any thoughts about uh, free will and how that works with God's uh, sovereign call on our lives? Is there any, any questions or thoughts about that? Yeah, that's a good example. Actually, before I understood this theological way of thinking about 20 years ago, uh, actually, that was an example that someone gave me. It made sense because Jesus said, he said, Lazarus, come out, right? He says he speaks to him first, and then you see the response happening after. So that's, that's an example that, that was given to me. I know Russell. Yeah, I, that's something you said that I think is, for me, like very helpful in thinking about this is just, I think when we think about um, God's sovereignty and predestination versus free will, we have a tendency to focus on ourselves and on this doesn't seem fair or whatever. But I think what scripture teaches is like we have to get outside of ourselves, broaden our perspective, think about like 
this is all for God's glory. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's how this, yeah. that's why predestination mm-hmm. and his sovereign choice works. And so like in Romans 9, where it says, um, you know, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? And Paul's answer is, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Which is presupposing this idea that like God is, this is all about him, all about bringing glory to him. So that was, for me, really mm-hmm. helpful yeah. in, in wrapping my mind about what, why is Yeah, that's really good. I remember reading that for the first time in like 97, 98. I was like, wow. <laughs> just, just taking that in, is, yeah, that's, that's really good spiritual food there. You have? Yeah, you said Romans 3 says, like, uh, put this thing in the original place of sin or a place of righteousness. Right. So basically, like, we are not autonomous with uh, in our free will. We actually, like, should be served someone at the end. So. Absolutely. We're bound one way or the other. So this freedom that we think that we have in this worldly context, we're really bound one way or the other. Absolutely. Yeah, so on, the, on that thought, I think it's, uh, when we say free will, I think it'd be good to like provide definition. And I think it's more so, yeah, so some people would probably say, well, you have this freedom to choose between whether God is sin. But I think scripture teaches way more that you have freedom to do what is consistent with your nature. Mm-hmm. Mm. Then this, uh, and so because we are bound by sin and slaves to sin in and of ourselves, what we are always choose is sin. We will, like the flesh is hostile to God. Right. You know, it will always remain hostile to God. Uh, in our flesh, we set our mind on things of the flesh. We cannot please God. We are enemies of God. Um, yeah, Ephesians two, like we want spiritually dead, following the course of this world, following the path. Uh, yeah, the desires of our heart. Um, but yeah, like these things were our desires, you know, and these things were on our mind and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And we were, yeah, very hostile to God, very enmity with him. Mm-hmm. So we will remain that way unless the Lord does something, right. you know, unless he regenerates us, unless he does <coughs> a new heart within us, unless he gives us his spirit that leads us to see him for mm-hmm. who he is. Yeah. And then by then we have a new nature. That we're new right. creation, and so we, yeah, right. we place right. our faith in him, we believe in him, we trust in him. So, yeah, yeah, like I would say, when it comes to free will, we have freedom to do what is consistent with our nature. And before Jesus saves us, we're bound by sin and crime. Yes. Yeah, amen. Amen. Somebody else had? Yeah, Coach. I just appreciate the way you started it, framing mm-hmm. under the authoritative word of God, because yeah. even within church culture, mm-hmm. how culture starts to infiltrate and interpret people's mm-hmm. views we carry in this. Yeah. There's some good in us beforehand. And so mm-hmm. how that then changes my lens on how I view scripture right. rather than starting with scripture. Yeah. And that interpret how I uh, you know, interact with it and view the world. So yeah. I just appreciate that, that you framed it around. Yeah. yeah. Praise God. Yeah. Did it, Johnny, did you have? Scratch my ear. Oh, okay. All right. I just saw, the, saw that hand. <laughs> saw that hand back there. All right. So, so with, un- with, with this understanding, naturally, I, I think our, the next thing that we should consider as Christians who grasp this is the topic of pride. So there could be a danger to those who believe in the doctrine of election and predestination, namely that Christians believe that they are better than those who are not chosen. 
This thinking leads Christians into a prideful attitude that existed in many, not all, of the Jewish Pharisees and Sadducees in the days of Jesus and the first century church, even though the first Christians in the first century church were mostly Jewish. This type of thinking is unbiblical based on Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. And we've already kind of covered that passage, so I won't read that. Christians thinking that they are better than those who are not saved is not the way that any Christian should think. It is highly likely that people who profess to be Christians that think this way may not really be Christians at all. So, and I'm going to say that in the context of one can have right doctrine and not be saved. Because salvation is by faith alone and by grace alone, right? So, in Christ alone. So, if we have all of the doctrinal positions lined up, but we think somehow that who we are or that we know that we're chosen and so we're special or better than someone else, and we get away from faith alone, but we begin to think that we're better in some way, now we're getting away from the gospel. We're actually adding to the gospel. So, yes, it's, right to, it's good to have right doctrine, but it is by faith alone. And so then we should understand that if we grasp our total depravity, if we grasp our total inability to be a Christian apart from God choosing us, as is stated in Romans 3, 10, verses 11, none, of, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, then we rightly understand our salvation. Then we rightly understand who we are in Christ. But belonging to the right denomination or belonging to the right church or surrounding ourselves with the right people who think the right way doesn't in and of itself make us Christians. This type of person does not have the right compassion toward the lost. This type of person does not realize that God has not revealed to us who he has chosen. So he hasn't given us some kind of, you know, mutant ability or something to kind of look in and say, okay, yeah, they're saved. They're not saved. Okay, I'm going to evangelize them over here because I know that God's going to save this person. I don't know. I'm not going to save these people, so I'm not even going to go over here. God doesn't give that. He doesn't give some kind of insight to us in that regard. We give the gospel to everybody, and we love everybody. And we realized that we were sinners, still are sinners, saved by grace, but we were blind too at, at some point. So we ought not think this way as, 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 as believers. Um, this is dangerous. Uh, it's dangerous in a way that has historically led entire groups of people being treated poorly because they were viewed as not being chosen by God. This is an atrocity that must not be repeated. This faulty thinking does not in any way negate God's sovereign election. Remember, both Jacob and Esau were of Abraham's seed, yet God loved Jacob and Esau God hated. True circumcision is a circumcision of the heart, not of the flesh. So this is, this is pushing against pride. We don't want to be prideful in our thinking regarding our salvation. 
Let's look at moral effort. So one pitfall is pride. We don't want to fall into that pitfall. And another pitfall is, 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 moral, is destroying moral effort, effort right? So there's a, there's a danger in thinking among Christians that we may sin at will because God's election is irrevocable. We just sin however we want to. Paul teaches against this thinking in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through two, 1 and 2. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. And he continues in Romans 8, verses uh, 6 through 8, where he says, To be carnally minded is death. The carnal mind is enmity with God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. My wife says this from time to time, you know, the, the whole thing, the carnal Christian. Oh, so and so is a carnal Christian. Well, right here it says, it says here, to be carnally minded is death. The carnal mind is enmity with God. These are antinomian, dangerous errors. Now, if you've not heard the word antinomian before, I'll define that real quickly. The definition of the word antinomian is of or relating to the view that Christians are released by grace from obligation of observing the moral law. It means a belief system that is anti-law or against the law. Now, this definition comes from Jason Holopoulos, who is uh, on the pastoral staff at University Reformed Church. It's from a sermon from 2016 entitled uh, Solid Ground, if you want to check out that sermon. So one who believes they can live in sin because they believe they have eternal security may not really be a Christian at all. So kind of going back to what I was saying a few minutes ago having all the right doctrinal positions and doctrinal understandings, one of those being eternal security, and saying, well, I have eternal security, so I'll go over here and sin and do these things. Because I have eternal security, theologically, I have the right thinking. But what I'm walking out, orthodoxy, my orthopraxy is out of line with my orthodoxy. So how in the world can I say I'm a Christian when I just freely in an unrepentant manner, walk in sin. So we, we ought not be those kinds of, of Christian. Uh, one who believes they can sin and live in this manner is inconsistent with the word of God. The Christian is in a constant state of repentance. The Christian is constantly aware of their sin. The Christian is constantly on their knees before God in repentance. This is a daily thing. We are daily repenting of our sinful hearts. James tells us in chapter 2, verse 18, that our moral effort demonstrates that we are actually saved. Doesn't, our moral effort doesn't save us, but it demonstrates that we are saved. And we see in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that the Father chose us before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless before him. We see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we have been created for good works. We see in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, that as his chosen ones, we are to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. That doesn't sound like we're supposed to be putting on sin. We're supposed to be putting on these things that the scriptures say are good things. I think quite obviously we should not continue in sin.
evangelism. So, you know, those who may have a question about this topic of predestination and how God works in saving us, they say, well, what about weakening the, uh, our, our evangelistic zeal? So, I'll say it this way. Some wrongly assess that if predestination is, is a reality, that evangel then evangelism is not necessary. Scripture says otherwise, though. Jesus and Paul are two examples of people in the scriptures who clearly advance both predestination and evangelism. Jesus says no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. That's John 6:44. He also says that not one person that the Father has given him will be lost. Jesus also makes this claim to the disciples all the nations. So Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18 through 19, it says it like this, and Jesus came and said unto them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, of all nations. So in, in chapter 6 of John, he says, no one can come unless the Father draws. In Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, he says, go to all nations. So he's saying both. He's saying people who are saved are chosen by God, as it, as it would be put. But they're also, they're saved because we give the message to everyone. We give the message to all nations. Paul says that Christians were dead in their sins and trespasses in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. He says that Christians are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. But then Paul also says, how will people believe without hearing the gospel and without a preacher? We see that in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 through 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. We get the same Paul who says, we're chosen by God, and, he, and the same Paul says, go out and preach the gospel and go out and evangelize, and share the good news in the word. So we see here both Jesus and Paul who advanced this, this, this theological position that the scriptures bear out that was a reality that they taught. It was hand in hand. It wasn't separate. It wasn't like evangelize. We don't, you know, God doesn't know who's going to be saved, evangelize, and then God's going to be surprised by who's saved. He doesn't say that. And he doesn't say, okay, God's going to elect his own. You don't have to do anything at all. You don't have any response. Just God's going to elect. It's together. It's God choosing, and we, we have a responsibility to give the gospel to the lost. That's just the way that God works it out. All right, so I know I went through that pretty fast, uh, but I get excited about that stuff. Um, all right, so in conclusion here, as we rightly grasp the sovereignty of God, the omnipotence of God, the infinite nature of God, while at the same time grasping the reality of our fallen spiritual state and our great need for redemption, we will rightly have a view of God that will cause us to rightly grasp the eternal decrees of God. All of the actions in creation including the salvation of God's elect, have occurred and will occur because of God's eternal decree. 
There is nothing that, it, that happens in this life that is beyond God's authority, his power, or his reach. This is a truth that should give us great comfort. Just imagine if things were happening and God would say, I didn't want that to happen. Oh no, I gotta have a plan B. If things were out of control, we would, we'd be in trouble if, if, if things were just out of, out of control and not having God to rule and preside over all these things. So uh, that is uh, our, our lesson for this, uh, this, this morning. We're right at time here, so uh, maybe I'll take one or two questions on the whole topic uh, that we covered, Any, anything that we discussed. Yes? Well, it's not a question, but it's more so like, so in light of God's eternal decree, and specifically as it pertains to salvation, God has also decreed, so what you're saying is God has also decreed the means of the elect being saved is through the proclamation of the gospel. Absolutely. Absolutely. You see that over and over in the scriptures, over and over and over. We are to give the, give the word of God, give the good news, you know, walk that out. Um, and you see examples of just, you know, flesh to flesh, you know, giving the gospel. And God is the one who makes that heart alive. We're not to think, okay, well, um, they didn't intellectually understand what I just said. You know, uh, we're to th- just give the gospel and pray and continue to give the gospel. And God is the one that makes that heart alive. All right, so if um, there are no other comments here or questions, uh, Ben, if you could close us in prayer, and then I'll, then I'll read um, a word from Numbers. Sure. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do praise you this morning that you are sovereign over all. You are omnipotent. You are um, infinite. You oversee um, all the affairs of all mankind. Father, we praise you Amen. And then Numbers, real quickly, um, chapter 6, verse 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. All right. Praise God.